Live from the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, CDC data show that black women are two to three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women, with most of the maternal deaths being preventable. We speak to Garnet Health's Jesse Moore about improving black maternal health. Wayne County Library funding remains uncertain. We speak to the director of the Wayne County Library, who says the public is under the misimpression that the library is fully funded, while demand for services has increased. The Equinox Historical Society needs your help to create a lasting piece of place-based public artwork in Equinox along Route 191. And moving toward health. Maggie Fitzpatrick, the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat, is here with her latest column, Post-Game Chicken Tenders. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. says it will veto a resolution expected to come before the U.N. Security Council this morning. It was drafted by Arab nations and calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. As Linda Fasulo tells us, the U.S. is proposing its own resolution amid the fighting between Israel and Hamas. The U.S. draft resolution calls for a temporary ceasefire as soon as practicable, the freeing of all hostages taken from Israel by Hamas, and the easing of restrictions on aid delivery to Gaza. The U.S. proposed measure says that a major ground offensive by Israel into Rafah should not proceed under current circumstances and would have serious implications for regional peace and result in further harm to civilians. Linda Fasulo reporting. A British court is holding a hearing over WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. He's trying to avoid being extradited to the United States. Assange faces several charges of espionage. His website published thousands of secret documents related to U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. A New York jury is deliberating for a second day in the corruption trial of the National Rifle Association. Top NRA executives are being sued for allegedly cheating donors out of tens of millions of dollars. NPR's Brian Mann is at the courthouse in Manhattan. This lawsuit, brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James, claims former NRA CEO Wayne LaPierre and his leadership team misspent more than $64 million using money donated by gun owners to fund their lavish lifestyles, paying for private jets and designer clothing. LaPierre, who resigned just before the trial, and other top NRA leaders deny any wrongdoing and say the lawsuit's part of an effort by James, a Democrat, to weaken and silence their group. If they're found liable, they could pay sizable penalties, and a government monitor could be appointed to oversee the NRA's finances. Even before the jury returns its verdict, this case has pushed the once-powerful NRA to the brink of insolvency. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. Stocks opened lower this morning after mixed reports from two big retailers. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped more than 30 points in early trading. Walmart sales rose nearly 6% in the most recent quarter. The discount retailer saw more customer visits, but the average shopper left the store having spent less money. Walmart says while prices have started to come down for some groceries, like milk, chicken, and seafood, that's less true of packaged foods and other merchandise. Home Depot is projecting softer sales this year, as high interest rates continue to weigh on the housing market. Last week, the government reported a sharp drop in spending at home improvement stores in January, although that was partly blamed on severe winter weather. And Capital One wants to buy the company behind Discover Cards for $35 billion. The deal comes at a time when credit card spending is on the rise. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is now down 20 points. You're listening to NPR. Farmers in Poland are the latest to join protests in European Union countries. They're trying to block all border crossings to Ukraine. Polish farmers claim their prices are being undercut by Ukrainian farmers and by EU policies addressing climate change. The South Carolina Republican primary is in four days. Polling there shows former President Donald Trump continues to lead his Republican rival and the state's former governor, Nikki Haley, by wide margins in the race for the GOP presidential nomination. Haley is due to give remarks in the state later today. 
NPR's Sarah McCammon has more. Nikki Haley was a popular South Carolina governor for six years before she stepped down to join the Trump administration in 2017 as ambassador to the United Nations. Haley is the last major candidate left in the GOP race besides former President Trump, who won the primary contest in all of the first few states to vote. She has struggled to overcome Trump's lead in her home state, despite campaigning heavily there in recent weeks. With early voting already underway, Haley's in the midst of a two-week bus tour through South Carolina, leading up to the primary on Saturday. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Billionaire Elon Musk has offered an update on an experiment underway by one of his companies, Neuralink. He claims that a patient who has a Neuralink chip implanted in their brain can now control a computer mouse using their thoughts. Musk claims they can move a mouse around a screen simply by thinking about it. Musk offered no evidence to back up this claim. It is not known who the patient is or what their medical progress has been like. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News, in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. And the listeners who support this NPR station. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. CDC data show that black women are two to three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women, with most of the maternal deaths being preventable. This heightened risk spans all income and education levels. To put that in perspective, according to a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research, the wealthiest black woman in California is at a higher risk of maternal mortality than the least wealthy white woman. Tomorrow, as part of their Lunch and Learn series, Garnet Health presents From Statistics to Solutions, Improving Black Maternal Health. It's a lunchtime chat with the experts to discuss black maternal health and the existing disparities. We should note Garnet Health is a financial supporter of WJFF. Jesse Moore is Garnet Health's physician liaison in the community health department, and she joins us now. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, we mentioned those statistics. Black women more than three times as likely to die from pregnancy-related complications as white women spanning all economic uh, areas. What, what do you think are the main reasons for these kinds of health disparities? Well, I think it's interesting to note that 52% is actually occurring in the postpartum period. We would think when we're hearing something like maternal morbidity or more. Uh, maternal death, that this is happening at the time of delivery. But we are seeing that the majority is occurring in that after period, the after delivery. So there's a, a few different places that we really are going to need to start placing more focus. But it it is something that is necessary to start looking at the racism and prejudice that do still exist within the country, because that really is where a lot of this is going to continue to stem from. And, and you mentioned the the systemic racism that's ingrained in some of this. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how that impacts care? Sure. It's it's very interesting and important for us to not forget about history. And a lot of individuals of color and different minority groups have experienced a lot of really horrible things um, at the hands of either government or healthcare in the past. And what things I'm referencing are like the Tuskegee experiments or uh, the HeLa cells, where when we're talking about Henrietta Lacks and cervical cells. And then we also have the Puerto Rican birth control trials. There's been a lot of these very high profile situations where individuals of color have been, you know, taken advantage of where there was non-consensual medical experimentation that took place. So you have to understand where individuals might be coming from, where they might have some distrust for the health or the government when it comes to people telling them what they should do as far as taking care of themselves. So a lot of that is driving individuals when it comes to being able to confidently access care. But then we've also had studies in the past where we had medical experts saying that individuals of color did not feel pain the same as their white counterparts. So they didn't need the same level of care or type of medications for pain that their white counterparts would have. So there is a lot that we need to still unpack in the history to understand what individuals are bringing with them, that, that stress, that weight that is already on someone. 
is is there is because of that is there an implicit bias in some of these care practices with some uh places some places that are providing care to black women i think and that's a great term implicit bias because very often it's it's not necessarily coming from a place of I'm outright trying to do harm to someone else. But these implicit biases are things that we don't even think about, that we might just be more likely to bond with someone because we have some sort of similarity or something in common with them, but not realizing that at the same time we're doing harm to other individuals. So, yes, I think it's very important for organizations to keep this in mind and have trainings and have these discussions and really educate their staff on how to work around those kind of biases. It's completely natural that they exist, but we need to find a way for healthcare organizations to identify where the problem is and then put more effort and time into that. And that's why all of us in this world, all of our organizations like ours, we have these community needs assessments. We're able to identify where the error, you know, the issues are, what barriers there are, what strengths exist within the community. So if we're seeing that women of color, especially black moms, are dying at a higher rate than their white counterparts, then we need to take our funding, we need to have policy changes, and we need to put more of our attention into that population. That's where it's going to be most critical at this time. Some of that bias or even misconception about health discrepancies during pregnancy, some people ascribe that to economic reasons or access issues. But is that the reality? I mentioned that statistic in the introduction from the National Bureau of Economic Research, which states the wealthiest black woman in California is at a higher risk of maternal mortality than the least wealthy white woman. Sure. There's been a lot of studies that will explain to you exactly how 60 percent of your overall health really is determined by the zip code and where you live because so much is going to have to do from the social determinants of health that you were born into, the things that you are experiencing that are often outside your control. But what you're specifically saying is these are black women that have high income. Why is this still affecting them? Well, we have to take a look again. Are they already presenting with a undiagnosed underlying conditions because maybe they have gone many years without seeking any type of preventive care. So are they coming in already in a, in a place where their body wasn't at the same level as maybe someone else who felt more comfortable with the medical system? The community in which they live, is there the same level of access to care? Is it the same quality of care as the town next to them? But also really taking a look and seeing, are they being heard by their provider when they're expressing an issue? Are they being silenced? Do they feel that they can say anything if they feel that something doesn't feel right or they have a question? Are they going in for the same amount of early prenatal care that is expected? So there's a lot of things to take a look at here. And some of it could also just stem back to individuals of color, especially black women, have dealt with this added stress of experience, prejudice and racism their entire life. And we know that stress of any sort is going to put a heavy burden on your body and it is going to put you at a higher risk for illness and disease. Are they coming in with some sort of undiagnosed chronic issues prior because they haven't followed up with any type of preventive care? So we we don't know. Um, There's a lot of questions that we need to take a closer look at. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Jesse Moore, uh, Garnet Health's physician liaison in the community health department, about a talk tomorrow as part of their Lunch and Learn series from statistics to solutions improving black maternal health. The talk is called From Statistics to Solutions. What, what are some of those solutions you'll be talking about tomorrow? Well, I I am not an expert in this, and I am also not a Black woman. So what was really important was for me to bring people in who are experts and who do identify as women of color. And we have some really incredible presenters, the two doctors that are joining us for the conversation tomorrow. We have Dr. Puntoda, who is our director for pediatrics. And we have Dr. Philip King, who is obstetrics and gynecology from Sun River Health in in Monticello. And we also have um, Lisa, from, who is a director in the NICU here for Garnet Health. They're all joining us to really dive in and 
start the conversation. And that's really the initial step to figuring out what the solution is. It's having the conversation. It's talking about it. It's getting more people involved and realizing that what we need to look at, we have to talk about preconception healthcare. This concept of reproductive life planning is very important to start at an early age. Whether you intend to become pregnant in the future or you have no desire to ever become pregnant in the future. It's important to sit down with a trusted physician or provider and start that process. And then again, we want to look at, okay, if you are pregnant, accessing that early prenatal care. That's something that Dr. Philip King really wants to discuss. It's getting in and making sure that we're seeing you from early on so that we can identify if there are any health concerns and monitor those throughout a pregnancy. And then postpartum checkups. We see that the numbers are low nationally. The percentage of women that are following up for their postpartum checkup with their obstetrician after giving birth is under 50%. It gets a little higher for moms that have had C-sections, but for those delivering vaginally, we have a very low follow-up. So there's studies out there that have this great idea. Let's have, you know, your obstetrician and your pediatrician in the same office because very often we bring our babies in for their checkups, but we're not following up for ourselves. So, you know, this is another idea, increasing the idea of home visitation like other countries have, paid leave, and then also really talking with policymakers and looking at how we can examine some international models of maternity care to inform some strategies to improve what we have here in the U.S. And it, part of that conversation also is with uh, mothers themselves. How can how can black mothers better advocate and protect themselves during this the birthing process? Well, I think the first problem is is we don't want to put this on black mothers as it's their responsibility to fix the problem. I think it really needs to stem back to us in the healthcare field and providing them with a safe environment where they feel that they can ask questions and that they are heard and that this is something that we're here to work with them. But as far as, you know, what can black mothers do? I think the best thing is to find a healthcare provider that you do feel comfortable with that if you don't feel as though it is a good fit, it's okay, you can change. You don't have to have this loyalty to a provider if you don't feel as though this is a good fit for you. Knowing when to seek immediate care is very important, but really educating yourself on those early warning signs like a severe headache, extreme swelling of the hands or the face, trouble breathing, heavy vaginal bleeding or discharge, overwhelming tiredness, Many of these symptoms could indicate that there is a potentially life-threatening complication. Also, sharing any recent pregnancy history when you are at your visits with your provider. And then having some sort of social support system before, during, and after pregnancy. It is very important. And myself, you know, having been a mom of three, I know how really helpful it was to have a new parent support group that I had attended through Garnet Health. And knowing that I had a lactation consultant there, as well as peers that I could speak to afterwards was really important. So those are things that all mothers can do. But in particular, for black mothers or any mothers of color, we need to make it a more safe environment so that you are comfortable asking questions and feeling as though you have a voice and that that voice will be heard. Do you think that um, medical trainees, newer, younger folks that are uh, you know, in their education process right now are putting birthing equity further up on, you know, to, to their attention and, and, you know, as part of a larger anti-racism movement as well? Are they, are they addressing this more directly than perhaps in the past folks had? I actually think they are, which is really exciting. We have seven different residency programs here at Garnet Health, and we have some of those residents do a rotation through community health. So that's a great opportunity not only for them to interact with the community and see it through the lens of community health, but it really does also give myself this opportunity to see what they think and what they are, you know, bringing out into the world as these new physicians. I've also had a lot of experience with students at Toro in Middletown, and these are upcoming doctors that are going out into the field. And I do see this great interest 
in public health and an interest in how we can look at health equity, how we can identify the health disparities that exist and how we can better address those so that we can have patients that are able to be more adherent to some sort of medical plan that is created, realizing that so often that additional barriers exist which is why a patient isn't necessarily following through with a treatment plan. And I am seeing these new providers coming out very eager to learn about that and to learn what non-for-profits or community-based organizations that we have within our counties so that they know where they can refer their patients to. So it is really exciting, and I'm starting to see that take place. If uh, folks want to participate in your Lunch and Learn series tomorrow and uh, learn more uh, about this talk, uh, where can they uh, register and get more information? Absolutely. There is um, there is links online, whether you go to our, the Garnet Health Facebook, Instagram, link to the Eventbrite. There is also a QR code that will take you there. But if you register through Eventbrite, you will be provided with the Zoom link and you can log in while you're eating lunch. You can listen to our experts and then ask questions of your own. All right. More information at GarnetHealth.org. We were speaking with Jesse Moore, Garnet Health's physician liaison in the community health department, about the talk tomorrow as part of the Lunch and Learn series from statistics to solutions, improving black maternal health. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. This is fantastic. And if anyone has any additional questions, they can always reach out to myself or anyone in the community health and physician relations department here at Garnet Health. Thank you. We'll take a break, and when we come back, funding at the Wayne County Library. It's more vital, but it's also more uncertain. We'll take a break. This is Radio Chatskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from JeffWorks Office Solutions, located right on Main Street in Jeffersonville, New York, a newly renovated pet-friendly office space that rents by the day, week, or month with hot desks, sound-insulated rooms, Wi-Fi, modern amenities, and 24-hour secure access. Online at jeffworksjville.com. And from The Cooperage Project, thecooperageproject.org. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa, this week on Latino USA. The story of Roland Sylvain, a Haitian-American immigrant who's now in deportation proceedings, all because of a little-known Trump administration policy decision known as the matter of Castro Tomb. It's like a kryptonite in this house. We don't talk about what if it doesn't work out. That's this week on Latino USA. Thursday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Well, the headline in the River Reporter this week says it all. Wayne Library becoming more, Wayne Library funding becoming more vital, uh, but uncertain. The director says the public is under the misimpression that the library is fully funded. Tracy Schwarz is the system administrator for the Wayne County Library, Wayne Library Authority and the library director for the Wayne County Public Library. She joins us now. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And um, can you talk a little bit about the library funding model and, and you being uh, unsustainable? As you say, as I said, and as you say in this article, uh, many folks are under the misimpression that your library is, is fully funded. So there's a lot of confusion about that. And that's with people who have lived there, here their entire lives, plus with the influx of um, second homeowners that have um, come to the area and stayed um, we just have a lot of misconceptions about that. Not everyone behind the desk is an employee of the library. Not all of them have MLSs. They're just good, hardworking people and volunteers who are trying to keep the libraries running. Um, our libraries are not fully funded. About 30% of what we, um, of funding that we receive is through basically the kindness of the county commissioners through their budgets. And 20% of that, uh, 20% is from the, the state. Um, and neither of these amounts has gone up in about the past five years while the price of everything has also increased. So that leaves the library in the unfortunate position of having to raise nearly 50% of its budget every single year locally and through grants and through fundraising and donations. 
So when people walk through the doors and just say, you know, why don't I have all of these, you know, why don't you have all of these books or why can't you get this or, you know, why can't we have more access to e-resources? My answer is just simply that we, we don't have the money and we are trying our best to use the funding we have to the best of our ability to offer a wide variety of services throughout the county. And even though you get a, a little bit of money from the Wayne County commissioners and, and county is in your title, you're not county funded and you're not county employees. Are people surprised by that? Yes, they really are. Because, um, you know, the library in Honesdale has always been called the Wayne County Public Library. We've been here since the 40s. And that's that's just the name. Um, but that does not make us county employees. It makes us a 501c3 that's privately funded and, and run. Um, so we're, we're greatly appreciative to the county commissioners for valuing libraries the way that they do. Um, but that funding is, you know, through the, the kindness and appreciation of, of them and what we do for the community. So what is your yearly budget for uh, the library and, and how many people are on staff? Okay, so our library in Honesdale is the largest of the seven libraries in the county. And we have about 10 people on staff, most of whom are part-time and who are not paid a competitive salary, to be quite frank. Um, I would say on average, it would probably cost about $40,000 a month to run this library. So you're looking at about $480,000 to run the library for the year, just keeping it open, paying people, um, paying for books, um, and paying electronic services, which are quite costly. So, And we try to do everything clearly as free as we possibly can to the community, but we still have to, you know, maintain things. And the building is beautiful, but it's from the 1860s, so it, it requires a lot of upkeep and a lot of work. Um, so I don't know if that helps yeah. the understanding. <laughs> well, yeah. And it, it, I mean, you know, you put it in context too. We, I, I've driven by and seen that beautiful building and then you think about it, wait a minute, that's going to require a lot of work. It's kind of old. And then also you've got just the, the physical nature of moving books back and forth. Can you talk a little bit about the work that that takes? Yeah. So, uh, and honestly, we have, we have a driver who takes the books all around to the seven libraries and back and forth between Wayne and Pike that we pay for. Um, Scranton delivers all sorts of books for us through a resource sharing um, situation that we also pay into. But um, to move all of these books, you've got uh, a, a contracted driver who is also not making a whole lot of money, who's hauling all these books back and forth and exchanging them throughout, moving um probably 20 bins every time they go. They usually go on Tuesdays and Thursdays and um, they're using their own vehicle. So we're paying for mileage and, and hours, but I just did it on Friday myself because um, one of our drivers, it was out sick and it is not an easy thing to do. It's a lot of physical labor and it's a lot of book moving. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's fun, but that's how, that's how people have access because we are working to resource share with as many libraries as we possibly can, but that money has to come from somewhere. Right. And you are, you're part of the, a, a federation and alliance with seven libraries, but in, in Pennsylvania, there's something like 450 independent libraries, but they're all funded differently. Um, some of them yes. have, a, have a library tax. You don't have a library tax. Is that something that, would be beneficial to you? Would you like to see that just because the of the unsustainability of funding? Well, absolutely, because then it would take a lot of the um, guesswork out of it and a lot of the um, libraries having to do fundraisers that are, you know, you're doing a soup sale here, selling candy bars, doing a family fun festival at the, you know, the Wayne County Fairgrounds, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of volunteers. And in the end, it, sometimes it doesn't make as much money as everybody thinks it does. So having a sustainable library tax would be fantastic. Do I think in the current political climate that that is something that could happen right now? No, I'm I'm being very realistic. Pennsylvania is a a millage state, so it affects the people who have the largest amount of land, which tends to be people who are already struggling 
like our agricultural population and those people who are working hard to to just hold on to their land. So I, I get that. I get that people don't want to necessarily add one more tax to that, but the benefits of what the library can do for you for a small amount of money is um, pretty astronomical. And we do quite a lot for the community from the senior citizens to our youngest and most vulnerable um, children. So it's it's a, a good investment, but, um, you know, it's a tough sell, and I, I get that. Um, heck, I don't want to pay any more taxes either, but I do recognize that sometimes you need to put in to make sure that people have what they need equitably. And, and millage, it's, it's one of the factors in determining property tax levies. Uh, so, yes, thank uh, you for explaining yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand it myself, so I had to look it up. Uh, yeah. So, so, yeah, being realistic about it, but, you know, it's it's tough. Uh, and, and in fact, there were some rumors that the, the library might close because of a, a lack of money, money and funding. So... Can you address that? I think, yeah, I think what that came from was that um, towards the end of the year, any nonprofit is is usually supposed to be, um, you know, not having a, a whole ton of money. Our our point isn't to make money; it's to spend it on the community the way it's meant to be spent. Um, but each year, when the state government doesn't pass certain, um, you know, certain things that free up these fundings in time it makes that amount of money getting to us push back even even later. And then we have to dip into other funds to be able to sustain ourselves to get to the next funding period. So because it took them until I think it was like December 15th or 16th to pass um, one of the bills they needed to release those funds, we, you know, we were kind of running in on fumes. It, it you know, it caused us to have to dip into some funding that um, luckily we had put aside, but that is a very uncomfortable place to be. So you're not closing. You, you still need funding, though, as we we're saying. And part of the reason yeah. that we're talking is so you can let people know that, you know, how yeah. you guys are structured, how they can get involved. So how can folks get involved to to help? So basically, um, spreading, educating people as to the fact that, A, no, we're not fully funded, be coming in and making some donations, volunteering your time. If you have books that are in good condition that we can put in our book sales to be able to um, to sell so that we can buy new books and put that money towards things like Libby and Hoopla and all those e-resources everybody loves, um, anything that you can do to increase our, our funding and stabilize it, be that talking to your local government officials, your state officials, that's very helpful too. Um, but for the most part, it's just being aware and advocating for the fact that, you know, these libraries are integral parts of their communities. So we would like to get back to doing what we do, which is helping people instead of being fundraisers all year long. Right. Sometimes you're worried about how you're going to pay that light bill when you'd rather be, uh, uh, you know, letting folks know how you can help them in, inside the library. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the reason I became a librarian was to help people and to get books in the hands of, of everyone who wants one and to have um, access to free education, Wi-Fi, things that people need and a, a warm, comfortable place to be. Um, I have a room full of ladies right now playing canasta and having a great time in our, um, you know, our room that we have set aside to have programs in. And where would they go without us? Um, then we have a huge population of people who never actually step foot in the library, but download books and um, have tutoring programs and things that we pay for that are online so that if they can't get to us during regular hours, we're still there for them 24-7 online. So we're trying to be as accessible to everyone as we possibly can. And there's an ongoing capital campaign. We mentioned that uh 1868 building that you're in uh, is always <laughs> in need of some improvement. So what's the capital campaign uh, focused on? So um, we recently just replaced our roof and our front porch, which is beautiful and wonderful, but only accentuates the rest of the outside of the building that appears to be having some issues. And um, so next up is replacement of the, the banister um, on our um, accessibility ramp. 
And then we'll be replacing some of the things on the outside of the building to um, make it uh, short up and more beautiful. We're looking at um, upgrading our lighting and clearly our windows could use some help. Um, so, you know, we'll reach out to seeds in a bunch of places and, and see sustainability wise what we can do to help along with that. But yeah, it's a costly building to keep up. And um, there's always something going on here that <laughs> that needs a little fixing. So yep, any any money that people want to put towards that, we will always gratefully accept. Well, there's there's more information about how you can help uh, WayneLibraries.org. Also, more information about all the great programs that you offer. Uh, a quilt class uh, tomorrow. Uh, looks like there's a Workforce Alliance smartphone basics on Thursday. And uh, what I'm personally interested in on Friday, pancakes and pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is a great one. Um, uh, Miss Betty, our children's librarian, has done this for years, and her delightful husband who we you know lovingly refer to as Mr. Betty comes and flips all the pancakes and they they uh, read a story and have a great time so um, that program is is pretty filled up at this point but um, those are all the types of things that uh, that we do throughout the year our truck petting zoo is super popular that'll be coming up in the summer Um, the family fun festival it's there's there's a lot of great community programs happening. So um, we try to partner up, too. Like Workforce Alliance has been helping us out with digital literacy classes. Um, at Christmas time, people tend to get new equipment, and then they don't know how to use it from phones to laptops to, uh, you know, how, how do I download a book? So um, luckily, we have a really great teacher through Workforce Alliance that's helping with those classes as well. All right, we've been and spe- tax forms too this yeah, oh, time yeah, of year. Right. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the the state doesn't really print any anymore, but the you know we have some of the the ten forties and and some of the basics, and we can print out other ones that people need. Okay. Unfortunately, we do have to charge some copy costs for that, but whatever we have, we will freely have here for people and try to help them out as best we can. And I think Workforce is also trying to work out uh, maybe a, a situation where if you need some help getting online to do your taxes, that they might be able to help. So more to come on that. All right. But, um, yeah, the tax forms are tricky. Um, <laughs> but uh, Owen can help you find what you need, and we can get it printed out for you if we don't have copies because they're just not sending as many um, they're just not printing them out. And I, I get it, save a tree, but also we've got a third of the county without, you know, internet access. So you, you kind of have to remember that there are people who still need to fill out the forms. Tracy Schwartz is the uh, system administrator for the Wayne Library Authority and the library director for the Wayne County Public Library. More information at waynelibraries.org. Tracy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us, and stop into your local library. There's so much to see and do. We truly appreciate it. Support your local library, Uh, folks. Thank you. (laughs) All right. We'll take a break, and when we come back, uh, Moving Toward Health with Maggie Fitzpatrick, the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat. This is Radio Chatsko. Hey, it's Steven Skeep. And I'm Aisha Roscoe. One of the things you can count on from NPR and this station, we've got your back. When it comes to reporting the news, bringing you facts you can count on. You can help by donating a vehicle you no longer need. That car could be worth hundreds of dollars in support or more as a donation. Think about it. We accept any vehicle, running or not, including cars, trucks, boats, RVs, motorcycles, and more. Donate at WJFFRadio.org. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. It's Tuesday, and that means we get to talk to Maggie Fitzpatrick. She is the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. And I have to say, um, you caught my attention with the column title. I thought I might. <laughs> you heard me talking earlier about pancakes and pajamas. Right after that on my list, post-game chicken tenders. Yeah. That is the name of your column. I just wanted to, you know, catch people a little bit off guard. That's all. <laughs> Tell us about post-game chicken tenders and how we can incorporate that into moving toward health. I'm exactly, I'm very excited about this. <laughs> I know. It's it's a really exciting combination of great things, honestly. Um, okay. So this past weekend, um, I, we had our last basketball game. And after the game, it was a we hosted a tournament at Livingston Manor 
um, in memory of one of our teachers, Audra Sipple-Spath, and it was the final round of the tournament. And so my team played first, and after the game, we're watching the next game, which was between Tri-Valley and Sullivan West. And my husband is with me, and we're, you know, just watching the game, talking to people, and he's like, we should go get chicken tenders. We should go get chicken tenders. <laughs> and probably like 10 times. And I'm like, okay, we're going to go get chicken tenders. And as we were sitting, eating our chicken tenders, it made me think about this tradition that we have, which is post-game chicken tenders. Yeah. Very important. Good tradition. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and so this started um, the year I joined the Sullivan County Women's Softball League. Um, we play a lot at Collins Park in Mongup Valley. And a lot of our games start at 730 and we play under the lights. And by the time the game is over, there's not that many places open to eat food. But I'm always hungry. Yeah. You know, always got to eat the game. Yeah, exactly. So we stopped at the Miss Monticello Diner, got some chicken tenders. That was it. And then before I knew it, we had a pattern of post-game chicken tenders. (laughs) Lots of games, lots of post-game chicken tenders. (laughs) And this has carried over, honestly. It's something that my husband and I really enjoy. And it got me thinking, this is a really important story to tell because this tradition, this thing that we do, it brings us joy. It makes us happy, right? It's, It's something that we share together. It's paired with something that is really important to health, which is movement and sports and exercise, right? And chicken tenders aren't the most healthy food on the planet. (laughs) No. You know, they're not. And so if it's important to me that I incorporate post-game chicken tenders into my life, then that's a factor that I need to take into consideration when I'm making the rest of my health decisions, right? And if I want that to be something I incorporate into my life, then I need to adjust my other decisions accordingly. You know, it's nice to hear from you who, you know, health is your, your business. You, you you coach these teams, you write the column, uh, and to hear that you're uh, incorporating this tradition, which is a fun tradition, into your, it's really about your mental and emotional health as well, not just the physical health. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so it's important that we recognize that giving up everything that's fun is not actually healthy, right? That's not actually what health is. We have to incorporate all different sides of it. And yes, maybe to um, do this thing that is really good for, like you were saying, mental, emotional, social, you know, my relationship, all those parts of health, then I need to maybe up the intensity of some other parts of my health to, I don't want to use the word balance, but compensate in a positive way, right? If I'm going to do something that takes away some health points, I maybe need to give myself some health (laughs) points somewhere else, maybe today, tomorrow, you know, around that decision. So that way these decisions balance out and I keep moving towards whatever my goal is. Well, and as you talk about this and write about it in the column, it's not about the guilt of it. It's about how to enjoy it and how to incorporate it. Exactly. And did you did you ever feel like at one point when you started this tradition, some sort of guilt or anything? And how did you get past that? Yeah. So it's been, you know, a couple of years now of doing this. And it's not every game that we get chicken tenders (laughs) after because I do play and coach in a lot of games. So that would be way too many chicken tenders. But um, it's it's gone up and down. Right. Sometimes sometimes my goals require me to be more strict where I go a period of time without having any post-game chicken tenders too. Mm -hmm. You know, like that also happens. And sometimes you feel guilty and you're like, oh, this really is not what I should be eating right now, right? And that's a decision that I need to make in that moment. And if I made the decision and I'm feeling guilty about it, maybe I need to spend a little bit of time coming to terms with the fact that I made a decision and that's okay. Right. I don't have to beat myself up for the past over and over and over. If I recognize a decision I made wasn't the best decision in that moment. okay, how can I just change that moving forward? There's also something fun about the well, not fun, I guess, uh, about the experience uh, after the game, whether you're you're uh, exploring or or celebrating the uh, win or exploring the defeat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're doing it with with your husband and people from the team, you know, you're, it's, it's communal uh, situation. And, uh, you know, that kind of makes it a little more, I think, healthy in some ways, not physically, but like just mentally and emotionally, you are, you know, processing this. Yeah. I think it's really important. We recognize that while food is fuel, it's not only fuel. And there's a lot of other aspects of our health that are often paired with food. Food is a very social 
um, thing that we do. Eating is a very social thing that we do. And I 100% agree with you. While maybe the nutrition content of that particular food isn't like filling up my health bucket to the max, right? The experience of this meal is filling up my social health, emotional, all of these things, which are just as important. It's not only about what you put in your body or how you move it. There's all of these other components of our health that are just as important. You you talk about this in the article, which is uh, in the Democrat today and also at scdemocratonline.com about, you know, reflecting on these parts of your life that bring you joy. And that's important. Yeah, I'm sure there's something for you that brings you a lot of joy and also gives you a lot of conflict because you beat yourself up for the fact that it's not yeah. healthy. Maggie, that would have been my uh, tuna salad sandwich and potato chips yesterday for lunch. That sounds delicious. <laughs> but it was, it was. I was like, oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the perfect combination. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's important that we don't just like deem things good or bad. We have to look at the situation and be a critical thinker. Right. And make decisions and maybe change them next time, whether it's good or bad, right? And going back and forth and not um, making everything so, you know, um, intense and also punishing ourselves for decisions all the time. It just doesn't need to be like that. It doesn't. And then I took the dog for a walk. That's lovely. It was lovely. A yeah. little, little chilly, but it was cold. Good. Little chilly. Very cold. <laughs> like, oh, maybe we should turn around. No, but it was good. Um, Maggie Fitzpatrick is the health and wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat. She joins us every Tuesday to talk about her column, Moving Toward Health. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, the Equinox Historical Society uh, has a chance for you to get involved in creating place-based public art. We'll learn more right after this break. This is Radio Chatskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org And from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFRadio.org. Sullivan County has two warming centers that are open to all every night this winter. The Liberty Shelter is located at the United Methodist Church on North Main Street, and the Monticello Shelter is located at St. John's Episcopal Church on St. John Street. These shelters are open for anyone from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. every night through Saturday, April 15th. More information at SullivanNY.us. And keep listening for winter weather updates on Radio Catskill. Bradley Cooper, welcome to Fresh Air. Tina Fey, welcome Brian back. Cranston, welcome. Sarah Silverman, Carl welcome. Rove, Hillary Clinton, Stephen Sondheim, Robert Redford, Lena Dunham, welcome to welcome. Fresh Air. Welcome to Fresh Air. Listen to Fresh Air Monday through Thursday at 2 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The Equinox Historical Society has received a grant from the state of Pennsylvania and from uh, the Wayne County Community Foundation to create a place-based public artwork installation in Equinox along Route 191. And they need your help. Here with more is Connor Simon from the Wayne County Community Foundation. Good morning, Connor. Good morning. All right. Thanks for being here. Tell us about this grant and, and what this place-based public artwork is is intended to do. Absolutely. So what this is, is uh, the Wayne County Community Foundation with a, a couple of other nonprofit partners in Wayne County have uh, applied for a state grant, which we received uh, recently last year. And what that entails is funding for public art all up and down Wayne County. So we're, we're the longest county in the Commonwealth, which is a little fun fact there. <laughs> and uh, Route 191 goes basically straight all the way north and south. And so uh, this little coalition of nonprofits got together, and we identified a couple of spaces in Wayne County that are uh, generally underserved in terms of the arts. Uh, we, we picked a place at the extreme north and in the extreme south. Uh, so we picked Newfoundland at the south and Equinunk up at the up at the north. And these two places have been designated for some of this funding. And we're creating little coalitions of people who are in those areas to create a piece of place-based public artwork that will be accessible year-round and then make its way into all of the maps and all of the documentation of public art in Wayne County. All right, so place-based art is, is public art, right? Is that, is that kind of what that definition means? Sure. So public art is... 
let, let me let me backtrack a little bit here. When we say place-based, we mean that it's designed by and built with people who live in a specific area. Uh, so when when I walk in as the community foundation and say, we're going to help you build a piece of place-based art in Equinunk. Um, that's not me coming in with ideas of what I want to do and, and saying that this is what you're going to have. This is supposed to be really engaging for the communities in, in which these pieces are built. So for Equinunk, we want people from that area to have a say in what that art is going to be and what that's going to look like. It sounds a little bit vague to say art, but it could be anything, a statue, a mural. As long as it's publicly accessible and it's open and free, then it should be designed by the people who live and work and, and play in that community as a piece of art that represents them. And so for the one in Equinox, it's at the Historical Society you, you've met with and spoke to the folks there, and they're, they're going to host this art basically on their site. Yes, exactly. So uh, the Community Foundation has a pretty good relationship with the Equinox Historical Society, who's generously offered some of the space right in front of their building uh, for the design of this. So it's right on the road. It's nice and visible. And uh, they've been working with us to try to find people in that area who, who have a stake in the area and an interest in art. And uh, we'll be holding a meeting this Saturday to, to discuss what that's going to be. We don't have any preconceived notions yet, but that's why we're looking for that public input. All right. So again, this grant, uh, it specifically stipulates that this art has to be designed by people in the community, right? Absolutely. Yep. And so this meeting on Saturday at the Equinox Historical Society is, is to brainstorm about that? That's exactly right. We'd like to um, offer an invitation to any artists who, who live or practice up in Equinox or, or the northern part of Wayne County that, that visit Equinox. And um, get them together and get some ideas back and forth about what this what this piece of artwork could look like. Um, some ideas have tossed around already just from uh, the foundation and, and the historical society about perhaps a piece of sculptural work. There's a lot of great sculpture artists up north, but it, it doesn't have to be locked into that format. Uh, what we're really looking for is is public input, thoughts. And then what are the next steps after that? Do you have more meetings? Do you uh, put it out for you know request for proposal? Yeah, so uh, this is hopefully the first of several meetings. Um, the, the term of the grant goes until July. So um, so we're hoping to work on this pretty quick. Uh, we'll have our first preliminary meeting. Hopefully there'll be some great ideas that come out of that. And then for artists and, and craftsmen who are interested in working and designing and, and building this piece, then we'll continue to meet and we'll make that project happen as, as soon as possible. The money's already here. All we have to do is come up with a, a design that really represents the place where it's going to be built. So the ball is in the court of the community then. Um, where can folks get more information about this uh, meeting uh, Saturday? Sure. Well, I, I can say that the meeting itself will be held at the Equinox Historical Society at 6 p.m. Um, anybody is, is welcome to come to that. Uh, there's no official channel for, uh, for getting the information, but if, if you needed more information or just wanted to know more about the project, you're certainly welcome to contact me. Uh, my email address is C, as in Connor, C Simon at WayneFoundation.org. And there's also a virtual uh, link as well via Zoom. Yes, there will be a Zoom link, and I'm happy to share that with anybody interested. Great. Uh, and then let's talk, talk about while we, we're, we're on the subject, um, in, in case there's folks in Newfoundland listening, what's, what's going on there? Where is that going to be based, that piece of art? Sure. So um, there's been a group of uh, local business owners and artists that have been meeting for a little while now. That one is uh, facilitated through the Cooperage. And um, they've come up with a few ideas. I, I don't want to say too much because I don't know how much is uh, officially cleared, but they meet pretty regularly. And um, also, if you send me an email, I can, I can let you know when that, uh, when that next meeting is going to happen, too. So they've already started their, their process. They've started ideating some designs. Uh, nothing is cast in stone quite yet, but they have an idea of where they want to go, and they seem to have some great momentum to them. And when can folks expect the, to see this artwork after this process uh, is over? Sure. So, um, like I said, the terms of the grant go until July, so hopefully by then we'll be, uh, we'll be 
very well along and, and open, and um, we're planning on having some kind of opening ceremony when the pieces are a little bit farther along, but you'll have to stay tuned, you know, as much <laughs> as I do at this point. You're good at teasing, Connor. Um, while, let's, while we have a few more minutes here, I just wanted to talk about the Wayne County Community Foundation and the work that you guys do. Uh, for folks who aren't familiar with it, can you talk to uh, tell them a little bit about what the Wayne County Community Foundation does and how you're enhancing uh, the quality of life for, for everyone in Wayne County? Oh, geez. Well, I could probably spend a couple of hours describing that one. <laughs> Just a couple minutes. <laughs> sure. The Wayne County Community Foundation is a lot of things. Um, we are purveyors of grants and scholarships for local students and county nonprofits. But we're also doing a bit of work in convening for, um, for public outreach. We're trying to be a resource for nonprofits that can tap into us and get some advice. Um, we hold a lot of funds, fields of interest um, for individuals and also for, for other nonprofits. And we, we, like to, we like to think of ourselves as sort of um, a type of glue that holds uh, community resources together and, and facilitates things to happen, all, all good things. One of those is uh, the Wayne County Emergency Housing Discretionary Fund. Uh, it's in partnership with the Wayne County Housing Department. Can you tell folks a little bit about that one? Sure. That's a brand new fund that was uh, just signed in by our commissioners a couple of weeks ago. And what that does is it stands as sort of a a stopgap emergency resource for people experiencing homelessness in Wayne County. Um, It's a sort of a referral-based program that uh, that goes through the the county housing agency. And uh, what that can do is allow for very specialized, um, specific case needs, Um, things like emergency bed bug remediation or an emergency hotel stay should all other resources be exhausted to that point. It's uh, it's sort of a, a last-ditch resource you can call on when you have nowhere else to turn. And there's more information about that and uh, all of your work at waynefoundation.org. Before we go, let's remind folks again about meeting uh, at the Equinox Historical Society Saturday for the community participation uh, in this uh, public art project. Absolutely. If you live or work in Equinunk and you're an artist or interested in public art, there will be a public meeting held at 6 p.m. at the Equinunk Historical Society. If you need more information on that or would like to attend virtually, send me an email. That's csimon at waynefoundation.org. All right, Connor Simon from the Wayne County Community Foundation. Thanks for joining us this morning and telling folks about how they can get involved with this uh, great public artwork, place-based public artwork in Equinunk. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. All right. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. Tomorrow, we'll talk about all things Liberty Winter Festival and some science stories that have caught our eye with Joe Johnson, former science teacher in Port Jervis, and I will talk about some of those science headlines. That's tomorrow on Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Radio Catskill supporters include the Sterling Business and Technology Park, located at Exit 17 on Interstate 84 in Northeast Pennsylvania, offering opportunities to locate or expand businesses on property zoned for manufacturing and other uses. More information at sterlingbusinesspark.com. And listeners like you, who donate at wjffradio.org. This week on the Retro Cocktail Hour, we've got the exotic sounds of Don Tiki, the Waitiki 7, and Les Baxter, plus the wild percussion of Dick Shorty. I'm Daryl Brogdon. Hope you'll join me where the music's always shaken, not stirred. The Retro Cocktail Hour. Wednesday night at 7, here on Radio Catskill. On this week's On the Media, for years, Big Tech has made promises to news outlets of a more profitable business model. Remember the pivot to video? Every news organization is desperate for the next thing, anything that might provide future revenue streams. That's a serious danger, and I think it's returning with AI. Journalism in an AI world. On the next On the Media from WNYC. Saturday afternoon at 4 on Radio Catskill. On Point is next, followed by Freakonomics Radio at 1. Today, abundant sunshine in the region, a high of 36. Clear skies tonight, a low 15. And tomorrow, a few clouds early, otherwise mostly sunny and a high of 37.
You're listening to Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR. Radio Catskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan, a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, independent, grassroots, global news. Our reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. People speaking for themselves, providing unique and sometimes provocative perspectives on global events. Democracy Now!, weekdays at noon, right here on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. This is Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen local. 